welcome to MA Forum where we're discussing a really important issue for progressive thinkers in the 21st century and that is the issue of widening inequality, some people say chronic inequality um, in the developed world and also in emerging countries and developing countries, the social consequences of all of that, the consequences for stability in those countries and we're joined by Dr. Christian Barry, who uh, is from the Australian National University and has been doing a lot of thinking and research on this very issue over the last few years. So welcome to MO Forum. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. If you could just uh, explain to viewers of MO Forum what you have been doing uh, at the Australian National University, what brought you to this whole area of ethics and um, in the study of morals and so on, uh, that might set the scene for us. Sure. Well, at the moment, I'm director of the Center for Moral, Social, and Political Theory at the ANU, which is a group of political theorists, philosophers, political scientists. Um, and we deal with a lot of issues which are both very theoretical in nature and also mm -hmm. a bit more practical in nature. Um, the, uh, the, the work that I've been doing recently focuses primarily on the question of what are the responsibilities of the affluent to address global poverty. Yeah looking both at the grounds for responsibility and how, how demanding those responsibilities are. Um, I got drawn into philosophy and political philosophy in particular, I think, from an interest in politics and from an interest in um, just general questions of how we ought to treat one another, um, which started me in literature but eventually led me into oh, philosophy. Right. Yeah. yeah, so uh, the, we've always had inequality uh, and even systems that uh, claim that their rationale is to uh, provide equality and justice for their, system, uh, for their citizens, such as the communist system uh, of the uh, much of the 20th century, actually was typified by pretty wide inequality within those countries in any event. Um, why are we unequal? Well, I think there are a couple of questions there. So um, one is, why are there inequalities? Mm. Um, and the second is, to what degree should we be concerned about inequalities? Yeah. Um, I think inequality has a number of different types of causes, um, systemic in part, that is, the way in which the economy is structured probably has a significant influence on the degree to which there is inequality. It's taxation system, the structure of labor markets, and so on and so forth. Um, it also has to do with individual characteristics of people, of course, um, why some inequalities occur in, in some places and, and not others. Um, the issue about why we should be concerned about inequality is a, is a complicated one that philosophers have thought a lot about. Um, some philosophers are of the view that we shouldn't really be so concerned about inequality as such, at least with respect to inequality of income. What we should be concerned about is poverty. We should mm -hmm. be concerned about the absolute state of people, um, not about their relative, relative. state so to one another. Relative, so absolute poverty rather than relative poverty. I mean, if you, if you say poverty is defined by being in the bottom 10%, the bottom 10% in one country might be a hell of a lot better off than the bottom 10% in another country. That's right. I think, um, um, so, so some people are of the view that, you know, if we could have a society in which everyone had enough, or a sufficient amount of the things that we think are matter, we wouldn't be so concerned about inequalities. Mm -hmm. um, 
I find that view to be to have some merit, but I don't find it altogether plausible. I think that um, one thing that we need to be careful about when we're talking about inequality is the space in which we're talking about inequality. So often when people talk about inequality, they don't specify inequality of what. Yeah. And there are all kinds of inequalities that you can point to in, in both developed and developing countries. Um, inequalities of income, yeah. inequalities of wealth, of opportunity, of opportunity and uh, various other indicators of well-being, health achievement, educational achievement, yeah. and so on. So I think one thing that we have to do when we're thinking about inequality and, and how it matters is think about what sorts of inequality matter yeah. and what is it about these different types of inequality that matter. Um, so one, one reason we might be also concerned about inequality is because of its effects on other things. So uh, inequality in the space of income can be important because once you have a society in which some people have a great deal more than others, they can often convert that wealth. They can convert that wealth into other types of advantages, yes. most notably through the political process, mm -hmm. um, which can be structured in different ways. But in almost all societies, those who have more wealth are in a position to exercise different types of uh, influence on the political system than those who have much less. And, and that's a type of inequality in wealth, which is leading to another kind of inequality, namely in, in opportunities for political participation, which people often have very strong views about, even if yeah. they're not so sure about inequalities of wealth as yeah. such. Isn't it the case, though, that um, based on surveys, uh, the people in countries typically accept that there is inequality, some inequality and that that um, doesn't really worry them, uh, but maybe inequality gets to such um, width, you know, that um, then it becomes a problem. How many societies, for example, are there who say, we want a completely equal society, everyone having equal incomes? That's pretty yeah, unusual. I think that's pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. And I think that often I think it's because people can imagine that there would be all kinds of interference in people's lives that would be required to bring to about that compress sort of outcome. that, yeah. Um, and that also that it would be in some sense unfair. That is, a lot of people think that there can be some causes of inequality um, which are morally acceptable. So if um, I choose to not work quite so hard as you choose to work, and as a result um, I stay at a certain level in my academic career and you rise to the top and you and part of your rising to the top means that you have greater income. Mm. Uh, many people will say that there's really no problem with that. That's yeah. actually a good thing, both um, because there's a sense in which your, your extra effort is being rewarded, rewarded yeah. and also because it sets in place a system of incentives which can be good yeah. for anybody, yeah. for, for everybody. Yeah. So the fact that we have uh, a world in which you know Craig's working hard can mean that he has certain advantages that I don't have can make a difference to consumers, for yeah. instance. Right. Well, uh, there was this um, astonishing interview um, on Canadian television when uh, recently Oxfam released a report which uh, suggested that the wealthiest 85 people in the world owned more wealth than uh, 3.5 billion people. And he was asked what he thought about it and he said, fantastic, it's fantastic because that gives the 3.5 billion people a goal and a motivation, something to which to aspire. And the, like the um, interviewer cracked up, like she was furious. But so that's taking this idea of incentive and, and 
looking up to you know be confident that you're going to be rewarded to the extreme. It right. Well, I mean, me. one of the problems, of course, is that it just simply isn't true that yeah. that uh, <laughs> three point five billion people, people can right? aspire to be in the top eighty five in the world. That's yeah. right. I think there's there's one thing that um, I think is important: a certain fallacy that is often sort of committed, sort of which is sometimes called the "is all" fallacy, or um, which is the idea that it may be true that there is one person among those 3.5 billion who could in fact rise mm. to the top, but it doesn't follow from that that all can. Yeah. And it's misleading to sort of base what the, the fairness of a system on the possibility that some people can rise to the top. You, what we usually yeah. typically care about is that that all people have an adequate range of opportunities to develop their yes. talents and skills yeah. and yeah. to achieve. You see that um, on uh, from some conservative people when, for example, in the education system you talk about equality of opportunity and on the more conservative side people say, well, that kid I know came from a very disadvantaged background and ended up um, getting into university and, and into medicine as now a doctor, all of which would be true. But does that prove that the system doesn't need any attention, that the other kids who didn't become doctors or rise up um, did so only out of their own um, underperformance? And I guess that's one of the philosophical divides. Uh, people on the progressive side would say the exception doesn't prove the rule and it doesn't mean that the system works because one kid or five kids get through it. Right, usually I think what we would be concerned about if we're concerned about equality of opportunity is not looking simply at those who make it out, but whether or not there are systemic features that make it much more difficult for people because of the social class in which they're born mm. um, to make to achieve certain types of, of outcomes for themselves relative to others. And I think we've been talking a little bit across different categories of inequality. And I think that, uh, at least in, in liberal democracies, there tends to be much more of a sense that inequalities of opportunity mm. are problematic in a way that yeah. inequalities of wealth may not be, may not and that be. political inequality is also problematic in a way inequalities yeah. of wealth may not be. Yeah. And I think, what, to return to your question before, when people worry about sort of corrosive inequality or equality mm. that we really should object to, um, they're often concerned about the degree to which there are inequalities across these domains, partly caused by this great concentration of wealth and the ability of people to convert wealth into advantages in these other spaces. The other so space, obviously, yeah. if you're a very well, wealthy person in many societies, you can convert that into significant advantages for your children relative to other children in yeah. the education sphere and so on and so forth. And you can also convert it into advantage in the political sphere through lobbying efforts, through belonging yeah. to, to groups to which, even if you're not active politically, politicians will naturally cater. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, even in the um, relatively narrowed narrowly defined area of inequality of inequality of wealth that's one dimension as we were discussing um, there appears now to be genuine strains on uh, the social stability in countries through chronic inequality um, the world economic forum uh, before their meeting in davos in switzerland in late january commissioned a report which identified as this as the number one threat to stability worldwide that inequality in developed countries and developing has become so chronic that people are really angry about it. Yeah, and I think that um, there 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 can be good reasons for that. That is that 
if you think about when you're a member of society, um, a lot is required of you. There's a system of laws and rules which are yeah. coercively imposed by all on all. On all, yeah. And if it can't credibly be told to each member of society um, that there are advantages to them in being constrained in, being constrained in, in this way, right. um, this does create what uh, the philosopher John Rawls called strains of commitment. They uh -huh. can't, they can no longer really see themselves uh, as part of a cooperative adventure. Yeah. Cooperative cooperative venture and adventure for yeah. mutual advantage, um, but rather they see themselves as part of a system which is systematically constraining the opportunities of some in ways that advantage others. And how would that that unhappiness, if you like, manifest itself in um, greater breaching of those breaking laws if people feel that they're being constrained uh, and not getting their side of the benefits out of that? I think you could see it in, in a lot of different spaces. So um, there were, if you look um, recently, even under what is often thought to be a relatively progressive government um, in Brazil, a country which has tremendous mm. income inequality, um, you saw rioting in the streets. Yes. You saw huge amounts of protests, and there the protests were about a range of things. Um, but some of them were about the price of public resources and started out as a strike against bus fare increases. I, I remember right? that, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's one expression of this. Mm. You could see other expressions of it in other ways. The Occupy Wall Street yeah. um, uh, movement in, in the US, which spread beyond Wall Street to mm. many other places, was Even again... Even Martin Place in Sydney. <laughs> exactly. It was, a, was a, again, a strong expression yeah. of that there was some systematic unfairness um, in the society that yeah. couldn't be, couldn't simply be addressed through well, call it ordinary political channels, a yeah. sense of deep dissatisfaction. Yeah. There are two um, economic commentators who have come into this debate, and for all I know, many more may well have done. So one is uh, Professor Paul Krugman. He's a Nobel laureate in economics. And the other is Martin Wolf, who is the uh, economics editor, if you like, of the Financial Times. Now, both of them have uh, written that they're about being quite fearful of um, the sorts of breakdowns that can occur. Not that they're saying we must maintain law and order, but they just see that the stability of the system uh, is under threat, as has not been the case since well before the Second World War, maybe before the First World War. And their, their argument is um, it's so chronic that people just won't cop it anymore. Yeah, that, that may be true. Um, I mean, it would be nice to think that um, we could get change in the types of institutions creating these these outcomes without that being held out as the threat to mm, which people need to right, respond. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think it seems plausible that, um, I mean, one of the things that's concerning is not just that people will resist, that they won't comply with law, but that there isn't a real good justification to give to them yes. why they should. Yeah. Right? That's a real concern. Yeah. How can you really justify to someone who is excluded from um, minimally adequate education and health opportunities? I mean, less common in Australia than in other places because there is a, a relatively well-functioning welfare state compared to some other societies. Yes. Um, but, but nevertheless, how, what, what can you say to that person? Why is it that they should comply? Accept all of these um, exactly. constraints on their, on their behavior. Uh, another way of putting this is uh, as follows, that certainly after the Second World War, there was an unwritten contract between 
the largest group of large group of people and those at the top, which said uh, the large group of people accepted those at the top could be very wealthy and earn incomes many many magnitudes are greater than they, as long as they had prospects of good jobs and you know reasonable pay, rising incomes. And that had been stable, notwithstanding that the wealthy had done very, very well. But now the wealthy are doing even better, and those at the bottom, or certainly at the you know around the middle, are not. And so, therefore, this contract is being torn up. Yeah. So one one way of sort of looking at this in in, a, in an interesting light is through the work of a philosopher, John Rawls, who I mentioned mm. before. And Rawls was a sort of a great. Uh, American political theorist, and he argued that um, we should conceive of society as a as a system of social cooperation for a mutual advantage. Yeah. And he thought that because we were all collectively um, coerced by the system of laws and rules, that um, we that equality had a certain significance as a benchmark. Mm-hmm. That is, that should be the default situation. Now he allowed. That there could be justified departures from inequality. And diverge from it in particular circumstances. And he thought that the the best justification you could give for any divergence from this benchmark of inequality was if the inequality made those who were worst off better Better off. off, Um, And I think there's a lot of debate about whether or not that's an appropriate way to evaluate social systems. But I think it certainly at least is a justification that you can give to somebody who is worse off in yeah. society, if you can say that under all feasible alternatives, someone, perhaps not them, would be worse off than they are. Yes. That certainly is saying that, yes, there's inequality, but it's inequality which is structured in such a way that it is to the advantage of all relative to yeah. Well, President Obama in his uh, most recent State of the Union address uh, said that the deficit of opportunity is a much bigger problem in the United States than the budget deficit. And what he was really saying is people can't see how they're going to rise up, um, not necessarily at other people's expense, but just to do better. And they're very frustrated that they're stuck. Um, So it's kind of an expression of maybe of what you're saying Rawls was on about, that um, they don't see the funny side of them actually being worse off through reductions in real wages while those at the top are not only wealthy but display their wealth in you know the most ostentatious ways. Yeah, well, I mentioned before that uh, one of the reasons we might permit inequality was because it could have positive incentive effects. Mm. That is, the people work harder, that they uh, do more because of the promise of financial yeah. gain, which may require there to be inequalities. But, of course, the flip side to that is that once you get... Um, inequalities of opportunity such that the prospects of people in certain social classes are rather bleak, that has very bad incentive effects, Mm. right? If you can't really hold out a reasonable hope of success in your endeavors, then that gives you a very little incentive to 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 work harder and so on. Except of course in the in if in the absence of that you really are destitute. Um, and it's that's very unfortunate that that would be the the only thing that would be giving people incentives to, yes, to, yeah. to be productive yeah, in their lives. Yeah. When I was going through university uh, oh so many years ago, uh, we used to read the works of Thorstein Veblen and conspicu- you know, about conspicuous consumption and pecuniary emulation and all of this. Uh, it, just, it does seem relevant to me that um, 
exacerbating this problem of chronic inequality is this very conspicuous way in which the very wealthy behave. You know, flaunt uh, some. You know, they're just flaunting their wealth in front of people who are not only um, perhaps going nowhere, not going up, are actually going backwards. Yeah, well, it's um, it's an interesting question that is raised by that is that if you live in a society where it's not only unequal but where there are unjust inequalities, uh, what are the implications for the individual? Um, there's a, a a famous philosopher, uh, Jerry Cohen, um, mm-hmm. G. A. Cohen, who wrote a book called "If You're an Egalitarian, Why Are You So Rich?" in yeah. which he tried to bring this question of uh, calling into question systemic problems within a social system to the individual level and saying that, you know, if you care about inequalities, if you care about um, the way things are structured and you recognize that the way in which your society is structured is unjust, then that should have implications for your behavior among them yeah. that you shouldn't be, think that you are rightly entitled to the fruits of your labor in such a system. Yeah. Right. Um, so that goes a good bit further than simply refraining from engaging in conspicuous consumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, do, I do think that... Um, that those, I think people often have a certain fascination with the very wealthy and the, the conspicuous wealth. And I think that, you know, that could be an okay thing were it not for the fact that there were so many other things that were wrong with people's lives, the yeah. problems that they were facing. Yeah. Uh, again, as an economist, um, I think one of the real problems in the last three or four years is this. We had a global financial crisis, um, which became the deepest global recession since the Great Depression. Uh, And the global financial crisis was overwhelmingly caused by very greedy people who did some pretty shady uh, things around derivatives and so on. Uh, And you'd think in those circumstances they would have paid a price for it. But it turns out that as a group, they've actually done very, very well in the four or five years um, or six years since 2008 when the global financial crisis hit. So maybe the people are saying they can't lose. You know, even when they do badly, they do really, really well. And even when we work, we don't get any better off. And, and I think there's a sharpness to this problem of widening inequality caused by uh, what's happened uh, in the lead-up to and since the global financial crisis. Yeah, I think that's that's that seems quite plausible. I think um, you know one of the things that has not been done very effectively is to explaining that it, if there are not going to be criminal prosecution of many people who are involved in in uh, the practices that led to this, uh, is there really a good justification for that? Mm. Now, the justification you often hear is that you know engaging in that sort of practice would be counterproductive. It would create problems for the economy, and that's the last thing we want. Um, but I get the sense that those types of justifications are not being made in such a way that people are yeah. really accepting yeah. them. Um, that, that what people interpret it as is that there's effective capture of political institutions by yeah. the very wealthy, and that they're ending up in a position to safeguard themselves from they're insulated form from, of forms from it, of accountability. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, an analysis of inequality, say, within the United States, which, as I said, President Obama has identified as a huge issue. Uh, arguably in Australia, it's not as chronic as that, but maybe heading in the same direction. But there's this um, other inequality to which you referred at the start, and that is between countries, you know, where we have 
um, genuinely poor countries that aren't really doing much better and very wealthy countries uh, just surging ahead. So is that, does that create any um, other moral, ethical issues, uh, any broader strategic tensions or anything like that? Well, I think it probably it probably creates strategic tensions. I think it also raises certain important moral questions as well. Mm. So one of the things to be concerned about in the world is not just that there are these inequalities between countries, um, but that there are very, very poor people in much of the world, including in some wealthy countries. Yeah. Um, so that we're, what we're concerned about is not just the, the, the inequality, but the absolute disadvantage of many people throughout mm. the world. Um, but of course, that's not entirely unrelated to inequality if you believe that um, these types of inequalities of wealth in an increasingly interconnected and globalized world um, can lead to some of the same types of advantages that you see within a society. So I mentioned before that um, uh, having great wealth can be converted into uh, enhanced opportunities and also greater political power. Yeah. Um, and insofar as we're related much more densely through systems of treaties and international rules and agreements which affect everybody, the fact that there are some countries which are relatively poor and vulnerable and other countries which are great, very wealthy does create asymmetries of power yeah. um, in, in the forming of these kinds of uh, rule-based systems. Which well, I'll give you a dry example of that. That's international trade. Um, under the new head of the World Trade Organization, what he's really trying to do is make sure those poorest countries have a genuine place at the table. Not just a flag, but that they are asked what their views are and they can help shape the agenda. And I think that's really smart because uh, the, the, there have been in the past examples where the big powers do the deal and once that's done, the rest just have to go along with it, whatever it is. But uh, I, I suspect this is what the future needs to hold, that even if they're small countries, even if they're poor, they really do need and deserve a place at the table. Yeah, and I think that another concern is that often many societies, which are poor societies, themselves have great inequalities. Mm. There are different social interests within them. Um, I mean, some of the countries which uh, have the largest number of poor people in the world are actually quite powerful countries, India and China. Yeah. Um, so, and Brazil, which we mentioned before. So these are countries which, on the one hand, are quite powerful, have a lot of wealthy people in them, but That's also true, have isn't a tremendous yeah. amount of poor people. Yeah. And I think it's um, when you mention things like trade and trade negotiation, it's often easy to overlook that. And in fact, the delegates from poor countries often represent themselves as sort of speaking for the poor. But of course, these are products of a political system where there's a great deal of inequality, and they often are representing the interests of relatively small elites within their own countries. Yeah, and so, so, yeah. so I think one of the uh, important issues is not simply having representation at the country level, yeah. um, but finding ways to represent the interests of the people who are actually affected by these yeah. decisions. And, uh, some years ago, I mentioned Oxfam in the, the beginning of our discussion about the 85 people having more wealth than the um, than 3.5 billion, they've done some really good work on the unfairness of the international trading rules, you know, that uh, in fact they allow uh, quite substantial import barriers against the products of the poorest countries on earth. And uh, again, that can be the product of unequal bargaining power at the table. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that is obviously important um, about inequality in general 
is that it makes people with less vulnerable to exploitation. It makes them vulnerable to domination. Mm. Um, and one of the things that's sort of a puzzle about exploitation, of course, is that the person who gets exploited is often better off relative to what they would have been without yeah. the exploitation. Yeah. But nevertheless, there's a sense in which they're not getting a fair share yeah. of the gains of social cooperation. Mm. And I think you see that quite a bit in the international trade system, yeah. right, where there are there are countries which see gains to be had from trade, from getting market access to rather large markets. Um, and so by participating, there's a strong incentive to participate in these rules. Yeah. But nevertheless, the bargaining over the precise shape of these rules mm. is dominated by much more powerful countries. So as a result, they do improve their position relative to the way they would have been had they held out of not, the system. Yeah. But nevertheless, there seems to be something intuitively unfair. unfair yeah. um, Rousseau, the famous French political theorist, yeah. said that no society should be such that um, um, somebody should have to um, could, could somebody could buy someone, right? yeah. and that nobody and it's, nobody should be so badly off that they should have an incentive to sell themselves into slavery. Yeah, right? well, a movie I, twelve years as a slave is very disturbing in that in that regard. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but I haven't. Yeah, no, but it's gruesome, absolutely gruesome. But also a must see movie, I think. Just uh, in beginning to wrap up, um, in your group, do you um, discuss remedies for what you identify as a great uh, philosophical and moral ethical issue that is chronic inequality? Well, I'm going to I'm going to um, take a little bit of an out here and say that I'm just a philosopher. Yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> not a, so so. I think a lot of the things that we, we discuss are the kinds of reasons that you yeah. would be concerned about inequality and yeah. poverty. and Which and, is very important work anyway, um, otherwise people would just say, well, it is what it is and we'll leave it alone. Uh, but certainly, personally, I'm very interested in mm. these issues. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that um, is important is to get these issues more actively discussed in by, by major political parties, yeah. for example, in Australia. Sure. So if you look at the last election, um, it was dominated by the normal, the, the usual types of issues. It's the economy, stupid, and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so what can you do? Well, ideally, you can get try to broaden the political debate to try to get more attention to the issues that simply get passed over. So yeah. one um, group that I um, am a part of is called Academic Stand Against Poverty, and mm -hmm. there's a an Oceania, Oceania chapter, and one of the things that that group did was commission studies which tried to look at the differences between the major political parties, the Greens, Labour, um, and, and the, and the um, coalition, on terms of issues that were of concern for the poor. Mm -hmm. Now that's yeah. something, so it was a, effectively a kind of audit of the yeah, parties yeah. on these issues. Now that's you know a very small thing in a sense, but it's the type of thing which is trying to put on the political agenda things which simply generally get passed yeah. over. Well, there, there was a debate that was looming that is right up the alley of the sorts of concerns that you've been expressing, and that's about um, the funding of schools and this needs-based funding model which provided more funds for um, kids with particular disadvantages. And there were five different uh, types of disadvantage, including low socioeconomic status, non-English non speaking background, uh, indigeneity and so on, kids with disabilities. But um, it got neutralised when the coalition declared that it was on a unity ticket with Labor and that it too now uh, was fully supportive of these so-called Gonski reforms. Um, Post-election, the jury's still out a little bit, but that was an example of 
an issue that had a moral and ethical basis that was so compelling that it actually drew the two political parties together, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. I think that one of the things that is striking when you look at political debates is that you often see major parties contesting an election and they don't actually even have articulated positions on the range of many of the issues that we've been discussing. Yeah, yeah. About to what extent should we be concerned about inequality yeah, of yeah, income? Yeah, yeah. Um, to what extent are these inequalities becoming compounding inequalities in other yeah, spheres that we yeah. also care about? Um, and that's very concerning. Yeah. Well, let's hope that this um, funding model does get implemented because it is a practical remedy to the sorts of issues that you've been identifying with this. Um, but just to wrap up, if there's one thing that you could change in the world, uh, what would it be? Well, I think uh, that's a very difficult question. For a philosopher, um, too. For a philosopher, well, for anybody to answer, actually. Yeah. Um, All right, make it two. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'll speak at the level of um, what, it, what, it would be, what I would change would be for people to be much less self-regarding and a bit more other-regarding in the sense that they um, are more concerned of the impacts of their own conduct on others. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very general yeah. thing, but I think it's a, a very important thing, and it's very difficult to imagine there would be any change with large-scale political processes unless more people yeah. start to recognize that while there are necessarily uh, a broad range of um, ways in which we are concerned with our own selves and our own well-being, that we have also to be very concerned about the impacts that our conduct has on others. Yeah. Well, Dr. Christian Barry, if you got that wish, it would be a much better world. Thank you very much. Thanks much for having for me. Enjoying us. Thank you.